All right, welcome everyone to this episode of Monetizing Your Mental Capital. I am actually super excited. I have Spencer Padway here. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to be here. This is a fun one. Spencer, tell us a little bit about who you are and why the sellers or entrepreneurs listening, why would they care to listen to to Spencer? Why why are you someone that they should pay attention to when it comes to monetizing your mental capital? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm Spencer Padway. I'm the CEO of Search Nurture and owner of Project FBA. I've been running agencies since 2009. So we're about 14 years in of monetizing my mental capital. You know, running businesses has been a passion my my whole life. Uh, and I really got sucked into the agency world. And so this is my bread and butter. It's what I do day in and day out and really what excites me. 14 years is a long time to be in the agency game. I love that. Honestly, that that shows that one, you, well, you're either too stupid to get out or you really do love it. And, you know, you've created something amazing. It sounds like. Yeah. I like to say uh, joy for me is doing something very challenging and succeeding. And I think you always find that in, in agency life. It never slows down. It never really gets easier. But when you're winning and it's hard, it brings me a lot of joy in that regard. Beautiful. Well, I I would guess there's probably some pieces of it that are a lot easier. I, I, in the first agency I started, man, did I make some major mistakes? My biggest one was not niching down. Like I just did everything for everyone and man, did it get easier. So from that standpoint, like man, did it get easier after I started saying no to people that weren't inside the right niche? So Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, we're, you're talking about you're know, monetizing mental capital. Uh, if you want to be really, really good at something, it's a lot easier to be really good at one thing or or the the smaller that focus when you're, okay, we're going to do web design, we're going to do multiple industries, and we're going to do all these other things. You know, it's near impossible for one person to be great at all of those things, or or even in an agency, you're, you're splitting that across everybody. So you need experts in, in total different industries and total different ways of operating. Beautiful. So we're going to take you back here. We're going on a journey with you. I want you to think back to the first time you ever monetized something. And I have heard everything from, you know, I monetized putting in really old RAM, like 256K of RAM into like the old Apple computers. These pay thousands of dollars to upgrade the RAM. And this guy, Scott Scharf, actually from from, uh, Eastone Catching Clouds, he would put a newspaper ad in and he would go upgrade people's RAM for him for a couple hundred bucks instead of them having to go into the computer store where he learned how to do it. So that, that's where he monetized his mental capital. And this was like back in like 1986. That was the year I was born. So we've heard all of it. Where do you remember your first opportunity to monetize something? And if it comes specifically to knowledge, great. But otherwise, where, where was your first opportunity to dig into that? Yeah, I mean this goes way back. I feel like from day one I was I was raised to be an entrepreneur of sorts. So uh, there's so many. I don't know which one was the first. I think probably the funniest was uh, back in the '90s. I was in a dance crew, and we got paid to perform. You know, I was probably like eight or ten at the time. <laughs> so that might eight be one of the or first ten. times. Yeah. Dude, okay, I love that. So another one, like we, I've heard it. There, there are. So this is probably one of my favorite questions because we. We find the origin stories of where these people come from, and they're like, they've got you've got all this respect, and you're like, wow, wait, dance company, eight years old? Hold on, tell me more. So, you're in a dance company. How many eight year olds were there? 
I was for sure the youngest, but there was six of us total. Six of you total. And where like are you dancing in like where where were you dancing? Yeah, we were dancing all over the place. Uh, you know, it was the nineties, so the name was Boys Club with a, a Z because that's how we did it back then. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, we danced at like Great America, various like, I don't know, events. Uh, you know, it wasn't like big money. I think we were making like, you know, 25 or 50 bucks. But it, when I try to go all the way back, I'm like, that's got to be one of the first times. Okay, <laughs> I, was getting I love that. And when we're talking about monetizing mental capital, that wasn't something that you just like woke up one day and you're like, dude, I'm going to go dance for the, you know, whatever and, and go figure that out. You had to gain some knowledge and some skill before. What what got you into that? What made you think like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go join this dance company and we're going to go dance for people? Yeah, that question assumes I had more autonomy at that age than I think I had. <laughs> uh, I think I have two older sisters, honestly, and I think they were both dancing. And my mom was like, I'm not driving you all to different things. So it was like, you're going to dance, too. And then I was like, oh, this is great. I love this. <laughs> awesome. So and that you happened to get paid. Did you have a choice to be in the company or not? Or was it, you know what I mean? Like, was that sort of like part of the, no, the girls are in, you know, your sisters are in the company. So you're going to be in the company kind of thing or, or where, where did it go that way? Yeah. Well, so they were in the studio, but yeah, the, the boys club, obviously, you know, they weren't in that because it was a boys club. <laughs> I'm sure I had a choice at some point and I don't even think it, it ever even crossed my mind. I was like, Oh, I'm stoked. This is awesome. I'm, uh, I'm so getting paid I even to, saying no. to dance. Yeah, and, exactly. And what, so, so go into that. Why, why didn't you consider saying no to it? What was it about it that drew you in? Oh, that's a great question, but I mean, I don't know. Why would you, you're having fun. Dancing is great. You know, I used to love to ham it up when I was younger. I loved acting, loved being, you know, the center of attention, doing those kind of things. Uh, yeah. And then you're getting like opportunities to do it on a bigger stage, bigger audiences for money. Yeah. It was just, it was all around for me. It was all around awesome. There was like, there, there's nothing about it. That was a downside. There's nothing that made me like, I don't want to do this. Just everything about it. Like this is great. <laughs> okay. So obviously we've got a, a vast journey here between, you know, dancing Spencer to you know 14 years of agency experience what what kind of happened in between what where did you you know as you kind of moved your way up what was your next opportunity monetizing something i mean there were so many i i remember i think i was in like first grade and i would go to safeway and buy the big bags of like airhead the the sour candies and then mm-hmm. i would go to or warheads not airheads warheads and i'd go to school and i'd sell them for like 50 cents a piece when i was in middle school i made a a company this was more mental capital building computers because you know i just knew how to do that it was was pretty early at that time i think a little later in high school i got into paintball and so i started a company where we would print out like high level decals and then cut them out and put them with like protective covering on your paintball gear so if you had like a team uh you could do that and it just goes on and on by the time i got to college i started a company with like a baseball video game and a web browser based one which were really popular at the time and just like one one after another random business idea i would run with it for a while they were usually pretty fun and nothing nothing panned out in a big way until i started my first agency and then i was like okay i'm really onto something with this one okay so what are some of the questions and you've mentioned so many different ideas there and i'm i'm <laughs> loving like you know all from the paintball and you know the so one of the fun things about talking to entrepreneurs about their entrepreneurial journey many uh, got into candy arbitrage. 
like candy arbitrage <laughs> is like is that a trend yeah that is a i am i am seeing multiple people who like oh yeah i totally you know just yeah candy arbitrage is is definitely one of those things that i see in, in multiple places what you know you thought about you know as you dug into the like let's go, let's go look at that computer opportunity where you're in middle school and kind of building computers and and you knew how to do that what was it that made you think wait a minute this is something i could monetize like i i could actually go and you know maybe make some money doing this yeah i mean i think everything i did probably started with a need that i had and i remember i, I really wanted like a solid gaming pc at the time uh, i loved loved playing video games for sure and i went to buy one and i just remember looking at these prices and being like this is ridiculous so i went and i built my own and then i was like that was easy and kind of fun so you know clearly if, if i need this there are probably other people out there that also want to save money on their gaming pc but don't know how to construct them. And especially back then, you know, long before YouTube or, or easy resources for this, there wasn't a lot of ways to just go ahead and, and figure that out. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think the same with, with all of them is I just kind of saw a need, I saw a market and I was like, all right, let's try this out. It, it worked for me. There's probably other people that need the same service. So you you had a deep felt need and, and what did you do to vet the need in the market? Cause that's happened to me as an entrepreneur. I'm like, Oh my gosh, everybody's going to need this. And I like get out there and like set up my stand. And all of a sudden it's like crickets, crickets. There's nobody here. Okay. I probably either set that up in the wrong place or I'm the only one <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who needed yeah. that. How did you identify needs that weren't just your own or weren't too niche to you? You know, at, at that point in my life, I don't know if I put much work into that. I think I asked my friends and was like, clearly this is a thing. I'm just going to put it on the internet and and people will flock to it. There was a little bit of interest. There wasn't a ton. I think I got better at that in my later businesses, like the, mm. the paintball one, right? I was at paintball fields. People were talking about it. I had a much bigger survey. I started going on forums and being like, does anyone need this? And there was a lot more interest. And so I was like, okay, this is great. And I got much better at later in my career, finding out like what are actual needs and, and where do people that need these things congregate? And then where can you go and talk to them and ask them and see if it actually is a need or if there actually is a market. And yeah, a lot of that, you know, I always use forums, I think is always a great one. If if people are really passionate about something, there's always some kind of discussion group about it. And whether, you know, forums take different forms now, it could be a Discord channel, a Slack, Facebook Reddit. group, but whatever kind of form, yeah, Reddit is always a huge one. Whatever kind of form it is, there's always going to be like a subculture and, and you can go and find those people and talk to them directly. And, and they're usually pretty happy to talk about, you know, needs that you're trying to solve for them. But I think the fascinating thing here, you look at the bell curve, right? And and the bell curve, you've got those people on the far end of the journey, those early adopters, right? They're, they're on the very tippy corner of that bell curve. And those guys are so passionate about it. They'll talk to anybody. You want to add something and make this easier for me? Yeah. How can I help you? Like, like they're all over it, right? They're, they're those early adopters. And so I, I think you're right. I think you have to find those watering holes, so to speak, and, and attract that. So, okay. So applying all of this, at what point, how old were you when you decided to start that first agency? I think I was 21. I was okay. 21. I was fresh out of college. I graduated uh, with a degree in finance during the financial collapse. So mm. my original plan was to go work at, at Morgan Stanley, uh, and that mm. changed really quickly. Mm. So came out of college. Uh, I was working in IT for a little while, just you know the computer trend, uh, selling that that knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, but I found that 
extraordinarily painful to go around to small businesses and do kind of menial tasks over and over. And the, I think it was about the first MozCon. I think it was like 2009. It may not have been the first, but it was certainly one of the first. And and my dad was like, you might like this. So I went to the first MozCon and went there for two days, learned tons of SEO. I swear the, the conference back then, everyone was giving away all the secrets. It was such a tight-knit community. Nobody cared. And then I came back and was like, I'm going to do that. And I just immediately, you know, with a, a beautiful mix of confidence and, and naivete, was like, you know what? Starting a company is easy. I'm going to do it again. This is the one. Uh, and I started an SEO company and, and you know, the rest, a the rest is history. The rest took me to here. A beautiful mix that, that describes <laughs> basically every, well, and the funny thing is I think Michael Gerber calls that an entrepreneurial seizure and he generally <laughs> describes it by someone who is a full-blown technician. Like they're an expert already. They're doing it for someone else. And they're like, that's it. I quit. I'm going to do, do this for myself. But they do have that same level of naivety in the whole it's easy. We'll figure this out. And they just dive off that cliff unknowingly know it, you know, all of the roadblocks that are about to come up their, up their, up their chain. So what was the first roadblock you ran into when you jumped naively off this cliff into the entrepreneurial uh, water slide? Oh man, the first roadblock, you know, one that I always remember that was interesting is back then SEO was brand new as a concept. And the sales pitch that I found very quickly was that not many people were looking for SEO. And so mm. the sales pitch back then was not, this is why we're the best agency for you. The sales pitch was, this is why you need SEO. It wasn't even about mm. competition. It was just trying to convince people that they needed to market their business in this way because it's it's the wave of the future. And that was interesting. That was really tricky to, to both be like, I can do this for you. I can do it well. And I'm going to teach you what this is and why you need it all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to like, they weren't quite problem aware yet, right? They they had not yet made it down the funnel far enough to recognize that I have a problem here that I actually need to solve. So you were doing a lot of educating, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So, a lot of educating and uh, showing up to do that educating is like, you know, a 21 year old kid. It's hard to build yeah, that yeah. trust and authority. <laughs> yeah. 100%. So as you're getting into this, I, I want to kind of go back to some of the questions we were asking. What what sorts of questions did you ask yourself before you dove off the cliff? Now you and you had had opportunity, you know, candy arbitrage, computer, you were doing some IT stuff again, the paintball thing. Like you had had opportunity to scale and fail multiple times and maybe not even scale, but just fail multiple times <laughs> at, at creating. Well, I mean, fail faster, right? Eric Rees, Lean yeah. Startup, like fail faster. It's about it's about that iterative journey, right? As you dug into that, what questions had you learned to ask yourself about SEO at 21? And I know, you know, my frontal cortex was not fully formed at 21. I, I, there were definitely pieces of me that were not looking forward into the future far enough to even whatever. But what questions did you ask yourselves to make you feel like, you know what, I'm going to do this SEO thing? What, what questions were you asking to decide that that was the right move versus going back to paintball or what are the, some of those other things? Yeah, I'm not even sure most of it was questions as much as it was just realizations. But but if they were questions, I think a few things fell into place. One, one full credit to my dad. He pitched it to me as like, SEO seems like you're playing a video game against Google. And I was like, okay, that sounds fun. I like well strategy done. in video games. Well done. I'll, video I'll game against Google. That is a great yeah. way. Okay. Yeah, your dad deserves some yeah. serious credit there. He, so, knew, he knew how to get me interested in it. it 
there's almost a passion side of that, right? Like I need to find something that I'm passionate about or that I can become passionate about. Okay. So am I passionate about it might be the question. And if you were going to ask yourself and your dad did a great job of making sure the answer to that question was yes. Okay. What else? Yeah. So I think that was one. I think the second was like, you know, is this a business that can grow? Is it new? Is it exciting? You know, and I think, you know, I looked at the internet at that time. And I was like, oh man, everyone needs this. They just don't know it yet. Uh, and so that, that's an exciting aspect for sure. Uh, and then of course, you know, the last one is like, you know, can I deliver and, and can I provide value? And what I learned by just going to that one MozCon is in two days, I had learned more about SEO than, you know, most people on earth at that time. Mm. Uh, you know, there weren't that many SEOs to begin with. There weren't that many people. It was like one conference room. It was one, one presentation hall. It wasn't now where there's, you know, 45 different sessions. It was just, we sat there and we listened to, you know, Rand Fishkin talk. Uh, and so I, I, I had a lot of takeaways where I was like, oh, I can do this. And, and even though I don't even know how to do this, I know that I can learn this in a manner that will still be useful to people that just are either unwilling or unmotivated to, you know, go into the depths of the internet at that time and learn something super specific, like, you know, technical SEO. Interesting. So in a way you climbed the value ladder or the knowledge ladder and you climbed, you chose Oh, I like this. So, so you could literally ask yourself, okay, which knowledge ladders have I climbed that create a ton of value that nobody else is really climbing right now? Like, like if we're talking about all the knowledge ladders that are out there and all the different places that you can climb up in, in different levels of knowledge, which knowledge ladder can I climb up that nobody else is climbing right now, but everybody else is going to need at some point in time or, or, you know, is going to make a big difference in, in what's there. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to sum it up into one, one question, that's the one. Okay. So you found something that everybody needed. And then any, any other questions that are coming to mind in terms of, you know, why you chose SEO for the knowledge monetization strategy versus other services you could have provided. I think I think part of it was there is a big potential to grow and, and part of it as well, which is something I, I still truly abide by. It's it's our core tenants, part of them at, at Search Nurture is that there was always the potential to have a really good lifestyle while doing this. E even mm. back then in the long early days, you know, we could totally work remote. Uh, and back then that was pretty revolutionary. Like not many people did that, but it was great. My my right-hand woman, Lindsay McAndrews, who's our head of operations at, at Search Nurture, worked with us back then. And she was always out of either uh, Nebraska or, or Florida. And so I, I also had this vision where it was like, ooh, this is going to open some new kinds of, of things. Like, you know, 14 years ago, nowadays, yeah, work from home is pretty, pretty commonplace. But 14 years ago, it was like, no business could ever run with employees that are just randomly scattered mm -hmm. around. And, uh, you know, we, we did it. We did it for a very long time. And so that, that was part of it, too, is I you know, I had these dreams and aspirations of being able to you know, travel or work flexible hours or or move around or work wherever I wanted. And, and so I think there was also a really appealing lifestyle aspect to the concept of running an agency. I like that. So does this business have the ability to create the lifestyle I want? Or does this knowledge monetization strategy create a lifestyle that's actually worth, you know, diving into? Yeah, like 100%. It. All right. So any other roadblocks that came up for you as you uh, began this journey of monetization? I mean, 
on one hand, I feel like it was all roadblocks. <laughs> you know, I, I know we we closed some clients, which was hard. That was our first roadblock is like, okay, we have to make some money. The second part was being a 21 year old with no experience hiring any kind of like actual employee and then starting to scale. I remember mm-hmm. when we got to three people, you know, I was like, oh man, you know, I'm hiring these people based mostly on gut feel. Didn't have a lot of experience with that. Didn't, you know, it, it was an interesting growth process for sure, but it's an interesting way to learn a lot is to just start by doing everything. <laughs> so, I mean, at that point, man, okay. So, so let's go back to that first one. I needed clients. I needed to find the watering hole, um, so to speak for where these individuals were. What did you do to go identify, you know, you, you had the supposition, that's why you went into it, that it was going to be big, but how did you go about identifying who actually needed it, finding those clients. Yeah. Well, so my, my father is a lawyer, was a lawyer then too. And that's where I started. I started with what I, I knew. So I went around and I started going to lawyer conferences and various things, you know, cases that lawyers get are worth tons of money. And even back then they were putting crazy amounts of money into pay-per-click. Now it's absurd, but even back then it was a lot. Uh, and so I started by going around and saying, okay, this, this is the market. There's lots of lawyers out there. I know the law game pretty well. And they're all going to need this service. And while I think that assumption was correct, selling lawyers is impossible. So that didn't work very long. <laughs> I tried it. I don't think I signed a single law client the entire time. Okay. Um, so hold on. You, and, uh, you went in, how many yeah. did you pitch before you gave up on law clients? Probably like 10, 15. Oh, man. That's rough. Yeah. I love that you... There's a very important lesson to be learned here. Riches in the niches, right? Like you decided right off the bat and you didn't make the same mistake I made, at least at this point in your journey, you probably made it later, but (laughs) you didn't make the same mistake of saying like, I'm going to do everything for everyone. I'm just going to do SEO for law firms. And so you pushed really hard on that. And how long did it take you to fail? How long did it take you before you were like, yeah, not doing the law firm thing, not, not going after these guys. Man, how long? That's a good question. I'd say it was probably like, Six months or more Six months. of trying that okay. until I was finally like, this isn't working at all. Yeah. <laughs> and if you were to look back on it, would you have, is there a question you could have asked yourself to stop sooner? Like, like to be like after, after the fifth one or, or was there, was there something that made you hold on longer that you wish you'd come back and be like, ah, yeah, it would have been better had I, you know, cause six months is a fair amount of time, but also it's a new market, right? You're trying to test it out. Any, any right. insight there? I don't know if the question would have been how to stop sooner. I I think what I could have done had I had more knowledge of sales at the time is is figure out how to qualify the potential clients more. Because, I mean, there's still a huge market for SEO and lawyers, and there certainly was back then. And I think my my issue was at the time, having no clients, having limited experience, I was pretty happy to take just about any client. And I think that the correct move that could have changed that would have been, you know, even back then, even when you're you're down and out, if you don't have any clients, still make sure that you're pre-qualifying those clients, still make sure that you're you're figuring out the right ones, you know, figuring out who who's actually spending on Google AdWords, because they at least understand the value of internet marketing. And, and then mm. when you're upselling SEO, you can do that. And I, I think because I was happy to just pitch anyone and everyone, I was getting a lot of people that didn't have budget or didn't have buy-in on the internet at all. Uh, and so it was a much more uphill pitch to convince them to spend, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month back then. 
So you probably shouldn't look through the newspaper and find all the people who were advertising in the newspaper and see if they wanted to get online. That wasn't the right strategy. Honestly, that might have been even better. Because <laughs> <laughs> at least they were spending money on advertising, at right? At least they're spending advertising, yeah. So interesting. And I had a friend who was an agency owner, and he he told me, your favorite clients are the ones who have not only tried and failed, but also hired and failed. He said, if you can find people who have have done both of those things, they've tried it themselves. They, they, they already, those guys are problem aware, right? Man, are they problem yeah. aware? And they're even solution aware. They know there's a solution out there and they tried it themselves. And then they were like, crap, I can't do that. So I'm going to go hire somebody. And they hired the wrong guy, the cheap guy who, who just totally effed it all up. And now they're ready to pay someone for realsies and let them be in control and do all that. So for me as an agency owner back then, and even when I do small consulting gigs now, like if they haven't ticked off those two things, I know there's enough fish in the sea. I'm just going to go after somebody who at least has that first problem, tried and failed themselves, if not hired and failed as well. Do you see that as well? 100%. It makes the the sales process so much more easy because of what you just said. They're problem aware, right? They're like, okay, I know I need this. I know it's way too hard to learn and do myself, which is something I, I see that flaw in a lot of sellers where it's a challenge as a business owner. You want to do everything. You want to take everything over, but you have to focus. It's not just niching down in your, your industry, but what are you good at? Because you, you can't be the person that's doing yep. you know marketing, operations, product development, and scale. And so, yeah, I, I see that totally. And and if they've tried an agency, you at least know, you know, what you can do to hire. Or if you've hired somebody, you go, okay, I have an idea of what I want. It didn't work that time. And as long as they still have hope that hiring will work, uh, you get great results. I think there's a, a flip side of that too, which is sometimes, you know, we'll have people come in. They're like, ah, I've tried nine agencies and none have worked. And we're like, okay, Ooh. the problem may not be the agencies at this point. Yes. Maybe, you know, your budget or who you're hiring or product market fit or, you know, Yes, probably like if nine agencies didn't do it, I am skeptical. (laughs) I'm skeptical that that your problem is my service doing the job for you. I love that. That's actually a fantastic caveat to the tried and failed, hired and failed, you know, qualification strategy. Awesome. Any other like as you began to go through that. So so you went from an SEO agency. So was it search nurture at that point or? Where did you shift towards? I mean, because you do a lot of Amazon now, right? Like, yeah, yeah. That's a little bit of a journey. How did you end up shifting? Yeah. So that that agency, Search Nurture is seven years old. So it's been about half my career. So the first agency was called Brandfish. And we were SEO only back then. And we partnered with another company and they did paid ads. So, you know, good, good symbiosis. And eventually we got bought by a company called Sellpoints. And Sellpoints was kind of an M&A play. They, we were uh, acquired Retargeter, we acquired a PVC, SEO, and syndication. Mm-hmm. And what Sellpoints did is, is it played in the space between brands and retailers. So that's that's where the e-commerce journey started way back when mm-hmm. uh, we all joined them. And then eventually Sellpoints got purchased by a few different companies. It, ultimately, right now, it's Syndigo. It's owned by Syndigo. Okay. Uh, I think it is absorbed into there. And so that that's what kicked me off and kind of moved me away from e-commerce and other, or sorry, from lawyers and other publishers into e-commerce, which is where we focus today. Interesting. So, you know, it sounds like one of the things you were following, you know, down that journey was watering holes, right? Trying to find the audience that had the biggest need for something that, you, you know, you, you looked at your knowledge set and you said, okay, 
again, going back to those ladders, which ladders have I climbed the highest where there's the biggest need and then, you know, kind of almost shopping around to find, you know, who's got the biggest group of people that need what I have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And who can we help the most? You know, one of the things I've always loved about e-commerce is it's it's much more measurable than a lot of other things. It's very dollars in, dollars out. You can see how many products you're selling. You can see that kind of growth. And it gets a lot harder when you're working with other types of companies that have, you know, leads or SQLs or MQLs. And it's all these things that are very subjective. They're objective if you built the system right. But you know, the goals can move, those things can be really challenging. So I, I love the finite nature of, of e-commerce as well. Interesting. So another qualifier that you could put on the type of knowledge to monetize would be, does this result in selling a product that has arbitrary results? Meaning people could arbitrarily judge that was a good lead or a bad lead versus that was a good dollar or a bad dollar. Like that, it, you, you literally, it's it's a kind of finite scorecard. So it's, it's harder to have an opinion of some, you know, someone coming in, it's harder to have a bad opinion about a profitable product because, well, it's a profitable product. There's not a, there's not a lot to have an opinion about beyond the, is it selling and does it have margin? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a simplification for sure, but exactly. It, it just makes things a lot more clear when we're, we're selling this product and saying, okay, we need to hit this many sales. And it's very clear what a sale is. It's not a subjective measurement. <laughs> There's okay. a literal volume of products in Amazon and we need to have less. So yeah, I, I like that kind of clarity. Okay. So I want you to think back to that 21 year old and he's literally about to embark on this journey and you now have the opportunity you pull out your cell phone and you see whoa spencer padway at 21 years old like you can call him right now like you you literally can you know make a phone call and be like dude spencer it's spencer 14 years from now i just want to let you know or you know i've only got a minute here to to tell you a little bit about where you're headed make sure that you what what sorts of things would you be telling Spencer, and especially in the knowledge monetization pathway? What would you tell him to to do? Wow, what a question! Okay, <laughs> instant advice for my fourteen year old self. I feel like there's a large gravitas to this. I'm like, I got to make sure this is right. I only have one minute. Uh, um, well, I, let, yeah. let's let's go with let's brainstorm a little <laughs> bit here. What? We're, we're going to brainstorm before we make the phone call to Spencer for 14, from 14 years ago. What are the sorts of things we could tell him? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think I know what my answer would be anyway, which is a, a few different things. You know, I think one one is find other people to learn from, uh, especially in the more traditional facets of the business. I think the other one I would probably recommend is, you know, keep your own path. And what I mean by that is I, I ended up selling my agency because there were a lot of dreams and goals of, oh, we're going to build this cool software. We're going to do these cool things. A lot of those never materialized, which is why I decided to to leave and start Search Nurture and okay, do my own thing. And, and I do sometimes wonder like, oh, man, what if Sir, or what if Brandfish was a 14-year-old agency at this point, right? Like how much experience would we, we have there? So I think, I think it's an interesting two things, which is a, a duality of like, one, stay independent. Do things your way because you're always going to do things your way if there's anything i've learned about myself and on the other <laughs> hand <laughs> learn even faster from the way other people do things <laughs> so that you can influence those decisions because you know, especially when i started that first one hiring growing selling i made it up i made all of it up you know i was just i was doing whatever seemed right 
and there, there's a lot of people that are very good and very experienced. And, and most people in my experience in life are very willing to help. And so there, there are some of those roadblocks I think I could have uh, bypassed much faster. Uh, and then some of those roadblocks where I look back and like, it would have been better to, to keep going alone, keep doing it your way the whole way through. So it, it sounds like maybe what you would have said is retain control and find a freaking mentor. Like, like yeah, pretty much <laughs> to, to like, like do not, you're going to be tempted to sacrifice control for help. And while help is amazing, you don't need to sacrifice control for help. And two, don't be afraid to ask for help from individuals who you can either hire or find some way to incentivize them to give you that help without you having to give up control. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's tons of people out there that have done this before and are more than happy to help uh, without even asking for anything in return, except for just, you know, the excitement of helping. And so uh, I I think that's a big lesson to learn very on is like, yeah, humble, humble the ego, find those people, be their friend, not not be their friend just because you're going to get you know some value in return. But it's just good to have friends like that, that you know you you can you can help and trust and confide in in business especially. So okay, I think if I were playing the role of you know a twenty twenty one year old Spencer, and I was you know saying back to you, well, okay, yeah, I get it, old Spencer, but how the heck am I supposed to get people to help me if I don't give up equity? If I don't, if I don't give up control, because in my mind, a lot of times control is equity, right? In in what you're building, sure. but control can be. I mean, there's there's all sorts of different ways that control can be given up. But how do I how do I get that level of help without giving up control? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, in my in my experience in my life, like again, if if you're friendly to people and you're genuine and you're curious. Like most people that have done this before, that's what they get the satisfaction out of. Once you've built a big company, you don't get a lot of satisfaction about, you know, hiding, hiding your your success or hiding what you've done. There's a certain tipping point where you go, oh, I see myself in this kid. I remember when I was that age. I remember it would have helped me. And and there's just a certain part, I think, of, of human satisfaction in that. And so I, I don't think it's even about equity or, or incentivizing the help. I think it's about finding the people that that you genuinely connect with and are genuinely happy to help you. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you have a good time talking about business or talking about these things or learning, like, how do I do this? How do I do that? And if you can't find those people, I, I think they're, they abound, you know, especially if you go to like conferences, you know, that that's who's at conferences. It's all these people that have done it a million times. But if you really can't do that, one of our principles that we have at Search Nurture, which you know is a, a learned principle, I think, from this process is stop reinventing the wheel. Um, because a lot of the time we start doing something and we're like, we have a new brilliant way to do this. And we start doing it. We put tons of work into it and we build it. And, you know, maybe it's slightly better than what was already out there. But like, we could have saved a lot of time and effort if we had, you know, hired a consultant. And that, that's something that we do very often now is even consultants, you can, you can pay them hourly. They're these smart people that have also done it before, you know, and, and for however many five hours, it's, it's a small chunk of change in the scheme mm-hmm. of the amount of value that you can gain from saying like, can you teach me your craft for these few hours? I love um, it. So a lot of value in that way. And, and what did you do to find, where do you find consultants like that? Uh, it totally depends for me again. I, I think it comes down to like, I know the word has more of a negative connotation these days, but it comes down to networking. It comes down to, you know, showing up, talking to your clients or showing up to conferences or, you know, asking your network, like, does anyone know someone that's really good at this very specific thing? 
I know like one of our consultants is somebody that I actually interviewed and we're like, you know, I don't think this role is right, but you have a vast amount of knowledge and we'd love to pay you to like teach us these things. I just don't think, you know, the company's at the point where it makes sense to to bring you on. So it's it's any connection point in your life, mm. any connection point in this industry can can be turned into that, a positive thing if you look at it like that. That's a super interesting. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with throwing up a job posting and, and saying, look, I'm looking for experts like this. I'm open to talking to people who have 20 years of experience and people who have five. My budget's not high, but if you're willing to have a discussion with me, let's talk about it. And then, you know, hey, you know what? You really are more of a consultant for us. So let's chat more about that. I don't think anybody's going to be offended by that at all. So what a fantastic way to network and let people know you have a need. I love that. Okay. Yeah. So shifting the call a little bit here, you know, we've now hung up on 21 year old. Uh, Spencer, he is much better off and all of his peers at Amazon who are beginning to look at their journey or, or these e-commerce sellers that are beginning to look at their journey of like, man, how do I monetize my knowledge? They they appreciate you for, for those nuggets of wisdom. What we're going to do now is we're going to give you 60 seconds. We're going to imagine that you've stepped into an elevator with an Amazon seller. And during those 60 seconds, you're going to speak to the pain that you solve at Search Nurture. So what is that pain? And I, I'm going to time you. So I'll, I'll give you like a five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> Sometimes I, I've had people be like, and I'm done. And I'm like, that was 30 seconds. Nice work. So, you know, wh- however long you want to take up, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. And then right after that. So, so you don't have to uh, just jump right into that. I'll ask you, I'll prompt you. But right after that, we're going to talk about any tips, tricks, hacks, or books that have helped you level up your game in terms of monetizing your mental capital. So uh, right. without further ado, are you uh, you ready for this 60-second pitch? I'm ready for this 60-second pitch. All right, go. All right. So think back to when you became a seller or you, you started your company. And like, what really interested you about that? Most of the people that I talk to, it's because they really liked building out their product or, you know, coming up with an innovative product or product design. It, it's very infrequently that I talk to a seller or an owner that's like, you know what I really want to do? I wanted to create this product so that I could then learn advertising on every single different retailer, on Walmart, on Amazon, and run these numbers and learn these reports and do this accounting and look at my fulfillment and work on shipping and accounting. Like, that's why. I think it's pretty rare that that's why sellers get into this business. And so what Search Nurture does is we're a holistic agency. We're your, your true partner, your one source of truth. So that when you have all of those different confusing things, those challenges, those things that you need to learn, we take those all off your plate so that you can really focus on your product and what brought you into being a seller in the first place. Well done, sir. Well done. There's the timer. All right, Spencer, before you give tips, tricks, or hacks, actually, no, give me the tips, tricks, or hacks, and then we're going to ask you how we can get in touch with you. So tips, tricks, hacks, or books. Tips, tricks, hacks, or books that, sorry, what again? Yeah, so tips, tricks, hacks, or books, and, and really anything that's helped you upscale your knowledge monetization game. So anything that's helped you in business from the standpoint of productizing a skill or you know, in your agency world, anything of, around that could be an app, could be just a, oh my gosh, you need to make sure that you you know eat your veggies in the morning or I don't know why you eat veggies in the morning, but you know, that, that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One one book that I read recently that I liked, uh, I believe it was called No Forms, No Calls, No Spam. Uh, and it's written by the, the current CRO of Sixth Sense, which is a sales platform. And it was a really interesting look 
at what your sales could potentially be like. And I really enjoyed, there's there a lot of piece in there. Of course, it's partially a pitch for Sixth Sense. It's the book written by them. But there's a lot of pieces in there that I thought were really fantastic and, and really cool to see where they use things like retargeting with display ads. And based on like intent data and based on what they've engaged on the website, the display ads would slowly move down the funnel, even though it was the same person. So it kind of identify that funnel point, change as they looked at different things, try to draw them back to the site. And if they came back in, they continued that funnel in just a very, mm. very intelligent, very connective way. And the mm. concept of you know no forms, no calls, no spam is to do it in a way that really provides that value to your customer. Uh, you know, you're not trying to ask for their email. You're not putting things behind a paywall. You're not calling them all the time and bothering them. You're not spamming them. You're you're making sure that your solution truly fits that need. And that's why it resonates and connects and, and getting that in the messaging. So that, that was a book that I, I thought was really cool to see. Like, if you truly have it all perfectly built out with the right data, what could that look like? And, and part of that mission that I like is, uh, you know, me, just like anyone else, is really tired of getting, you know, nine email drip campaigns saying, are you there? Are you there? And it's like, oh, come on. Like, you're not even trying. You're just blasting stuff. So I like the vision of a future where where sales is actually personalized and, and well-targeted. I love that. My my wife often should be like, are you, I mean, do you really want to make sure that everybody has that information about you? Like, like she's like all worried about the spam and everything. I'm like, man, if I could get to a place where my mailbox is full of crap I'm actually interested in. Dude, imagine I'd be so excited to go out and get the mail. It wouldn't be full of crap that was like, man, yeah. I don't care about any of this. Like if I could get to a place where like they actually knew what I was looking for. And so there's this fine line between like privacy and all, all of those other sides of it. But man, it, it would be fantastic not to get spam anymore. So 100%. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. Like you remember when you were a kid and you'd run out to the mailbox and be so stoked with that mail. Like, that's what I want to feel when I get sales outreach. It's like, yes, this is great. This solves my problem. Not like, oh, cool. They've emailed me nine times and I haven't responded. And they just keep going for some reason. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yep. A hundred percent. Any other tips, tricks, or hacks you want to, you want to give? And if not, uh, where can we find you? Yeah, I think let's jump to, to where you can find us. So searchnurture.com is our agency website. And if you are an Amazon seller and you're looking for more information on how to or the best tools to use, go to projectfba.com, which is a great resource for sellers to, to help learn a little bit more of that DIY until you're ready to uh, bring on someone to help you with all that like search nurture. Beautiful. Well, thanks, Spencer. Lots of great nuggets there in the knowledge monetization journey. We will take it out from there. All right. Thank you. It's great to be here.